1: Coming up, explaining the mysterious fairy circles in the Namibian desert.
2: I I find that, in some sense, a whole whole lot more satisfying than than fairies.
3: (laughs) And the news that viruses can talk
1: to each other.
4: I had heard this story and it didn't disappoint.
1: Plus, a new analysis aims to reproduce cancer studies. Do the results hold up? This is The Nature Podcast for January the 19th, 2017. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy.
3: Call it déjà vu, but this week a handful of papers are being published that might ring a bell. That's because they're replications, do-overs of high-profile papers published in the last few years. Just how easy is it to do the same experiment and get the same result? Kerry takes a look.
5: At the end of October 2013, cancer biologist Erki Ruzlati got an email he wasn't expecting.
6: Well, I wasn't too happy about it.
5: Mel told Erky that a paper of his, a high-profile article from 2010 about a way of delivering drugs to tumours, had been chosen for an ambitious replication effort. His wasn't the only one. An independent team of scientists were planning to dissect 50 cancer papers, assemble the kit and the reagents they needed to do them over again, and try to reproduce the results.
6: The people from the program are contacting me, I can't say that it's a pleasure.
5: The effort is part of a program called the Reproducibility Project Cancer Biology. It's run by Elizabeth Ions.
7: Elizabeth Iorns, CEO of Science Exchange. And Tim Errington.
8: Timothy Errington, a meta science Manager at the Centre for Open Science.
5: And it aims to examine key findings in cancer biology to see what proportion of them stand up. came about because some pharmaceutical companies reported having trouble with replicating work in the area.
7: So um, Amgen and Bayer had published studies showing that their rates of being able to reproduce published results were around 20 to 30 percent and obviously there's been a lot of um, media attention around this issue but there hasn't been any open projects to actually examine the um, rates of reproducibility by doing replication studies, and so this project was the first to attempt that.
5: The project leaders knew it wasn't going to be easy to do carbon copies of the experiments.
7: We anticipated that there would be challenges around... um, The models behaving as expected, um, being able to access enough information about the protocols.
8: The materials that weren't commercially available.
7: Being able to access original reagents or even identify unique reagents.
8: Trying to just understand what to do.
5: They got going in 2013 with over a million dollars of funding from a foundation and 50 papers to reproduce. A couple of years later they scaled back their efforts to about 30 papers citing the expense. And now they publish the results of the first five replications. Erky Roslatti's paper is one of them. Spoiler alert, scientists had not been able to get his drug to work.
6: Well, I I was disappointed, but uh, not uh, entirely surprised.
5: Erky thinks the replication failed for a few reasons. He doesn't think they used enough mice. He says they didn't spend time troubleshooting once they got one negative result. The first experiments the team tried to replicate were to see if Erky's peptide actually built up in tumours in the first place.
6: Once they found that it didn't do that, then uh, there was no point in going further. But they uh, just went on and did a treatment study, which, based on the first result, was doomed.
5: The reason this might have happened is because the reproducibility lab was obliged to stick to the recipes and procedures they'd set out in meticulous reports they published in advance of their experiments. These reports are peer-reviewed, and Erky and others fed back on the one concerning his work. The other four studies being published this week fared marginally better, two mostly substantiated, but two inconclusive.
8: These first five show um, that it's mixed, that there's this lot, There's a, quite a range of uh, a variability between uh, one study and the other. And I think it really kind of points to uh, what we're potentially going to start seeing with these other ones.
5: Nature spoke to all five corresponding authors from the original papers for a news article, which you can read on our website. Some praised the effort and some worried that negative results might hold repercussions for them. Elizabeth Ions is quick to add that these results just add a few new data points, rather than overturning the work that came before.
7: We want people to read the papers and interpret the results themselves and have an open discussion
5: about what reproducibility really means. For some scientists, replication is just something done as standard. Erky says upwards of a dozen other labs have already replicated the results from his original paper.
6: And and there's more in
5: the pipeline. He thinks that should be enough. But the project is about more than just this handful of papers. It also illustrates some of the fundamental and really quite ordinary challenges to redoing science. In a lot of cases, it's boring old logistics that could let future reproducibility down.
7: So, for example, it was difficult for us to obtain information about the original published studies just because it wasn't standard practice to publish raw data, it wasn't standard practice to publish full protocols, and it wasn't
5: standard practice to publish unique identifiers for the reagents used in those studies. So much for doing the replication, communicating the results is also going to be important, especially for the scientists whose work was chosen. Here's Erky. I'm
6: concerned that the the negative message and, and the outsized publicity that this will receive will um, bias people against maybe our grants and and some other things we
5: do. In fact, he has a more pressing concern.
6: We're about halfway through doing the preclinical work that is needed to get this uh, into the clinic. I'm, I'm real worried that uh, uh, this will spook uh, potential investors.
5: Erky says that could damage his attempts to produce a cancer drug. Elizabeth Ions and Tim Merrington urge others not to read these studies as simple yes or no answers.
8: These are single replications, um, just like what we're replicating is a single study. And right now the current system is that we publish, we find some some result and then we move on. Um, And what we're trying to say is, uh, well, how does that look? How does any piece of evidence look? This is really getting uh, not so much at trying to say anything about the entire field. There's there's lots of pieces of evidence. This is trying to get more at looking at one individual piece of evidence and really getting at how are we conducting our research and how are we communicating our research.
5: So what would be their one tip for a study that will successfully replicate? I'll give you a clue. Organisation, organisation, organisation
8: plan ahead from the beginning the very first time when you're conducting that study think about your future self and think about all the other scientists are going to want to read this understand it eventually reuse it and build upon it
5: the first five replication studies together with their registered reports those planning documents published before the experiments began are being published tomorrow Thursday January the 19th by the journal eLife you can find all the details at elifesciences.org With luck, says Tim, the rest of the 29 studies they're working on will be out by the end of 2017. Tim Arrington is from the Open Science Framework. He co-runs the project with Elizabeth Ions of Science Exchange. Erky Roslati is at the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute in La Jolla, California.
1: Still to come in the research highlights, an ambitious diving somersault and a tiny little knot. But before that, Adam's been investigating a mysterious pattern. If you fly over the Namib Desert in southern Africa, you might spot something
3: strange, something almost magical in the grasses below. In places, the vegetation is dotted with strange scars, round patches measuring a few metres across where the grass doesn't grow.
2: Hundreds of thousands there, may, there must be. I mean, they, they stretch on hundreds of kilometres.
3: This is ecologist Karina Tarnita. What's more, these mysterious barren patches aren't just scattered about randomly. They're organised.
2: If you look at any one of these circles um, and you count their neighbours, it's always roughly the same number. It's always six circles. They're very regularly spaced, so it looks kind of like a
3: polka dot dress. These Namibian polka dots have a name. Fairy circles. So where did these fairy circles come from? There are many suggestions for their origin, as mystical as their name suggests. Depending on the story, their creators could be anything from dragons to ancient ancestors. There are plenty of more empirical proposals too. At the moment, the two most prominent hypotheses involve either underground termite colonies competing with neighbours for territory, or the plants themselves competing for a scarce supply of water. Both hypotheses hope to explain the size, shape and organisation of these circles. Physicist Ehud Meron has been investigating how the second of these hypotheses, plant competition, could lead to these fairy circles.
6: We developed uh, long ago a mathematical model to explain uh, vegetation patterns in, in, in general. And uh, this works beautifully for vegetation patterns. Uh, in this model we don't have Termites
3: at all. A Hood's model can produce many of the observed qualities of fairy circles with no help from termites. So that's one nil for the plant hypothesis. But termite mounds are found in the fairy circles of Namibia. Corina and her team wondered whether a model of competition between termites could also explain the patches.
2: We started to wonder might it be possible? that you could get superficially the same patterns from very different processes. So um, the first thing that we wanted to do was to see, can we make a model that um, takes into account insect behavior and see if it's possible for termites to produce these kinds of patterns?
3: Lo and behold, when they used their termite model to try to explain the fairy circles, it also seemed to capture the key elements of the rings. So that's one all. We're back where we started, with seemingly little way to choose between hypotheses.
2: For us, the immediate insight was, what if both of them are right?
3: So, in a paper out this week, Karina and collaborators set about combining these two hypotheses into one, by using a model that simulates competition between termite mounds and competition between plants for scarce water. They found that, like the individual hypotheses, it captured the key fairy ring features –
2: But it also made this additional prediction that if both of these mechanisms are occurring in this system simultaneously, then the vegetation, when it self-organizes, it forms this tiny clump of grass. And every clump of grass should have about six neighbors.
3: So the model not only predicted that each fairy circle should have six fairy circle neighbors, but that the vegetation in between the circles should be clumped. And these clumps should also have six neighbors. This prediction seemed to offer a clear-cut way to finally settle what causes the fairy circles. If true, it would mean that everyone had been so distracted by the circles themselves that they'd missed this far smaller pattern in the vegetation. Karina's team quickly arranged to get more detailed photos of the rings.
2: We were waiting, you know, on the edge of our seats to see... what will happen when this, they send us the photos, and, and they did. And it was really very satisfying because it became immediately clear that we, would, we were finding this exact same regularity that the model was predicting.
3: Exactly the same regularity. So surely that finally closes the case on the fairy circle mystery.
6: It's a very nice paper and has interesting results.
3: This is Ehud Meron, who we heard from earlier. But Huds not convinced we should abandon the plant competition hypothesis just yet. He reckons that if the plant competition model is set up to take account of water transport by plant roots, they could also get this same result.
6: We can leave the uh, uh, feedback due to the roots and get, wherever there is vegetation, get the small-scale patchiness. I'm pretty sure we can do it. We haven't done it yet.
3: Although Ehud and his collaborators haven't tried that particular experiment, he explains that they have another reason to stick with their termite-free hypothesis. The Namib desert isn't the only place with fairy circles. Similar patterns have been spotted in Australia, which seem to lack the regular termite mounds found in their Namibian counterparts. Ultimately, though, Karina thinks that this debate won't be settled until the hypotheses are truly tested. And to truly test a hypothesis... Researchers need to get out to the field.
2: Models are always very helpful to bring all of these ideas together and to make new predictions. But I don't think the case can be closed until you have some manipulative experimental field experiments done in this system, where termites are killed or displaced to see what happens to the circles, or or, or plants are, are killed on certain areas, or, or water is added on
3: certain areas. So hopefully, one day, researchers will carry out experiments like these and the fairy circle mystery will finally be put to bed. But wouldn't it be kind of sad for this incredible phenomenon to lose its mystique? Karina doesn't think so.
2: To me, knowing what's behind them and knowing that tiny things like termites or plants can create patterns on the scales of hundreds of kilometers, that to me is, is, is mind-boggling. I, I find that, in some sense, a whole, a whole lot more satisfying than, than fairies.
3: <laughs> that was Karina Tarnita of Princeton University in the US. Her paper's out now at nature.com forward slash nature. You also heard from Ehud Meron, who's at Ben-Gurion
1: University in Israel. Stay tuned for the weather. The space weather, that is. That's in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Sharmini Bundel.
9: You are not going to believe this. Scientists have platted three tiny synthetic strands into the most complex knot yet made in the lab. The strands cross in eight places, and the whole thing is only 20 nanometers long. Flexible polymers can knot themselves, but so far scientists have only managed to engineer very simple loops. This team used little specks of iron to control the positions of the strands as they assembled into the knot. Structures like this could be useful for making new materials that are tough and flexible. Find that paper in Science. Divers are always keen to try out the most ambitious tricks. The more complicated the dive, the more points they can get. Now, Australian mathematicians are helping out by modelling a new dive, the calculations for which are published in a study on the preprint server Archive. Involving one and a half somersaults and five twists, the dive is currently completely theoretical, but they claim it should be physically possible. It may be mathematically sound, but it requires such precise and rapid movements that a representative of British diving, quoted in The Guardian, described the dive as a bit of a non-starter.
1: Imagine you're a virus particle floating outside your next bacterial host. You're preparing to infect the cell, injecting your DNA into the bacterium and tricking its cellular machinery into replicating your own DNA. But you have a choice. You see, you're a temperate bacteriophage, Phi3T to be exact, and viruses like you have two phage cycles to choose from. Here's Nature Microbiology editor Nonya Pariente to explain.
4: When a temperate virus infects, um, it can choose between two uh, different um, types of cycle. In one, it will prime its own reproduction, so it will go into the cell, it will produce many copies of itself, and in uh, leaving the bacterial cell, these copies will lyse the bacteria. And so a lot of virus will be produced, but the bacteria will die.
1: This is called the lytic cycle, but you have a second choice.
4: The lysogenic cycle is where a virus will integrate its Uh, genomic material into the genome of the bacterium so if it's host, and um, it will stay there dormant the bacteria will not die therefore it'll just have an extra piece of DNA Um, but this virus could potentially reactivate in the future so it's saving itself from death if you will Um, although talking of death without life is weird
1: viruses are not considered to be alive so can't really die as such but we'll talk more about that later Back to your choice as you float outside your bacterial host cell, ready to infect and kill it by replicating, or let it stay alive and lie dormant. If you're the first of your kind on the scene, surely you'd like to kill and replicate, infecting all the bacteria you can. But if you're later to the party, most of the bacteria will already have been killed, and your progeny may not be able to find any more bacteria to infect. In that case, you should lie and wait until bacterial numbers recover. So how do you choose? especially since you don't have a brain. With trepidation, you engage your bacterial host and set about injecting your DNA into its cytoplasm. And then, in the distance, you notice a signal. This signal is a peptide molecule called Arbitrium, which means decision, and it acts like a simple messenger. The Arbitrium binds to receptors that you've had the bacterium make for you. Arbitrium is produced by other viruses like you. Indeed, you go ahead and instruct the bacteria to produce some Arbitrium for you too. The more viruses that have been in the vicinity, the more Arbitrium will have been produced. And if there's enough, it will overrun your receptors. The chemical din in your bacterium is deafening. Now, here's the clever bit. That receptor, which Arbitrium is binding to, has another job. It inhibits lysogeny, the cycle in which viruses lie dormant in the bacterial genome and don't kill it. All this Arbitrium has bound to your receptors, which means they can no longer do their other job of stopping lysogeny from happening. It's like the brakes on lysogeny have been lifted, and so you lysogenize and lie dormant in the bacteria's genome. In this way, you've detected how many viruses are in the vicinity and decided which cycle to progress down, all without a brain. This simple but ingenious process is called quorum sensing, and up until now it's only been seen in bacteria. For Nonya, finding it in viruses was an exciting moment.
4: You read a lot of papers and some are good and some are bad, but you can remember, you know, less than five per year, I would say, that are truly groundbreaking, that, that you feel excited about. And it didn't disappoint. And actually, my notes say this, you know, I had heard this story and it didn't disappoint.
1: It was a surprise, too, to the authors of the paper. They thought the communication was between the bacteria. Here's Rotem Sorek from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel.
10: What we were looking for, we we chased the hypothesis that maybe uh, bacteria communicate between them in order to alert uh, that a phage has infected the culture. So basically this was the hypothesis that we were following and we were completely uh, surprised to find uh, basically the communication appearing from the phage.
1: Rotem didn't just find that these viruses could talk to each other. He also found out that, in some rudimentary way, they have different languages.
10: Different phages have different kinds of the signaling molecules, and so one phage, uh, one phage species, it only understands its own language. So, so basically, many different phages speak with different languages, and each each phage understands its own language.
1: This, in particular, excited Nonya.
10: The the
4: viruses that a virus spawns, if you will, will be able to detect what um, what its progenitors produce and not what progenitors of other kinds produce. So they talk to each other in very specific languages. And of course, it also opens the possibility that if they talk about this one particular decision, they may talk about other things as well.
1: Rotem says that not all temperate viruses communicate like this, but it could be more common than scientists might have thought.
10: Uh, we found it in uh, hundreds of cases in nature uh, we don't know yet if uh, this uh, kind of communication system is more broad or not. I hope that our paper scores, uh you know, future research that will look whether other temperature ranges use uh, such communication as well.
1: Rotem's work brings up an even more fundamental question: with the help of their host, viruses can replicate, they can evolve and speciate, and now they can communicate—all things which are associated with life—and yet. Viruses are not considered to be alive, which raises the question, should they be?
4: It's a very hard question, philosophical question at the root, so I am not sure. I really think that this takes us a step closer to them being, you know, having the behaviour of of living. Um, But, well, I am a very biased person as a virologist and I've always thought viruses should be alive.
1: That was Nonya Pariente, a senior editor for Nature Microbiology, who handled this paper for Nature. And before her, you heard Rotem Sorek from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. You can read the paper, along with the news and views all about the discovery, over at nature.com forward slash nature.
3: Finally, this week, it's the News Chat and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hi, Adam. First to India. Now, in India seemed on the verge of approving GM genetically modified mustard, but there's a holdup. So what's going on here?
11: Yeah, so the Indian um, or or an agency of the Indian Environmental Ministry had done uh, a safety study and concluded that there were no safety problems with this uh, crop which would be the first genetically modified transgenic food crop to be approved in the country. But there is now a lawsuit which is pending with the Supreme Court. And it's been there for a while, and it's not clear when the Supreme Court will actually make a decision.
3: What are the benefits of this genetically modified crop meant to be over conventional mustard?
11: The main benefit that has been mentioned is an increase in yields. This is a crop that is used mostly for making oil. The seeds are pressed to make oil. And it it was traditionally used in northern India and and Pakistan and and Bangladesh. But it has been taken over by a lot of other cheaper oils, some of which may be imported. So the the, the argument was we increase the yield of mustard seeds and of mustard uh, oil and we will be able to produce more of it for cheaper.
3: So, what are the accusations here? What's what's the cause of the holdup?
11: So, part of it is the the familiar concerns about transgenic crops, about safety in particular, the fact that you know you take a gene from one organism, you put it into another, and there could be unforeseen consequences. And then there's also the the worry that if this particular type of crop takes over, then. Uh, the company that produces it will gain too much power over the market. And also the plaintiffs are saying that the the benefits, the potential benefits of this crop have been exaggerated. And in particular, the, the safety tests were not really designed to maximize the uh, yield of the crops that were being compared. And so it's not clear exactly how much more yield one could get from this particular crop.
3: How does this fit into the wider GM debate in India? So the
11: wider GM debate, there was uh, there was there's one non-food crop which is currently approved, which is cotton, a, a, a type of cotton, which has been enormously controversial. There have been people who have blamed it for causing farmers to commit suicide, and uh, a lot of these claims were not very well substantiated. But there was a hope that when the Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, that uh, because it was seen as being uh, more open to testing and potentially approving these these GM crops, that the whole pipeline might be restarted. So this could be a test, this particular crop, even though it's only one, maybe not even major crop, it's been seen as a test.
3: Do we have any timeline for when the Supreme Court would make a decision on this?
11: So apparently there is no deadline and... and The court has given no indication of when it might reach a decision.
3: Well, let's move on from this project, which I suppose has been put on hold, to a project which seems to be on the way to getting the green light, and that's a European Space Agency mission to launch a new probe. But this probe isn't going to the far reaches of the solar system, right? No, but it would
11: go far enough away from the Earth. It would be orbiting the sun at one of the so-called Lagrange points, which uh, are kind of like a balancing act between the gravity of the sun and the earth. And the reason why they would choose this location is that it would be a, a good viewing point to see solar storms in the process of being ejected from the sun, but before they reach earth and potentially cause havoc.
3: Aren't there already probes which, which monitor space weather?
11: Yes, there are, and there are probes that study, in general, that study the sun, both both built by NASA and ESA. But uh, this one would be peculiar. It would be kind of unprecedented in that it would have this vantage point from which it can tell when a solar storm, and in particular uh, the most dangerous type, which is called a coronal mass ejection, it would see it in the approach to Earth and it would be able to give a longer advance notice, for example, to grid operators so that they can take uh, precautions to avoid a lot of damage.
3: Is there actually a big risk of these things? And would they cause really bad damage?
11: These really extreme uh, space weather events are not that uncommon, but they don't always get directed at Earth. And the last one that went straight to Earth that's documented was in 1859 and although we didn't have you know the internet or the electric grid at the time it disrupted telegraph systems and a lot of telegraph stations caught fire because of it uh, if something of this magnitude were to hit Earth today when we are so reliant on technology we have the grid we have the internet we have all these satellites you know a lot of the communication satellites for example could be fried
3: so would this give? a big advantage over what we've got at the moment
11: the the fact that you can get a longer advance notice by several hours because of this vantage point and also the fact that as the sun rotates the part that potentially could produce a solar storm will be visible from the probe days in advance compared to when we can actually see it from earth and so if there's a you know if there's a menacing sunspot for example something that looks like it could produce a big solar storm, we would be able to see it uh, much longer in advance.
3: So it seems like quite a reassuring thing to have there, this warning system about these huge solar storms. Do we know when it's actually going to be out there?
11: So it's still at at an early stage. So far, the Council of Ministers has approved the initial funding for R&D, which is about 30 million euros. And... It will certainly be several years before you know the final funding is approved, which it's expected to cost about 450 million euros. And so we're talking about at least the 2020s. It's, it's not clear how long.
3: Thank you for joining us, Davide. For more on those stories, nature.com forward slash news. And to stay up to date with all the latest science news, make sure to follow Nature
1: News on Twitter, at Nature News. And while you're there, give the podcast a follow too, at Nature Podcast. That's all for this week. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance.